Father God, you have a rich feast in store for us from your word this morning. And I pray that we would be hungry for it. And I pray that we would have appetite, Lord, for the food that you prepared for us. And please make us ready to accept your word, Lord. And I pray that it would transform us. Uh, please would we love you more, Lord. Would we see you more clearly. Would we have confidence in the one in whom we have put our trust. Um, and I pray, Lord, that you would um, make us your faithful servants, ready to do what you will. In Jesus' name. Amen. Between England and France, there's a strip of ocean called the English Channel. Or at least that's what the English call it. Um, the French might have another name. Um, it connects two huge oceans, the Atlantic Ocean and the North Sea. Uh, but between England and France, the strip of water gets very narrow, less than 21 miles at its narrowest point. And that narrowness has tempted a good number of adventurous athletes to swim across. And 37 people in history have successfully managed it. Uh, one of them was an American woman called Florence Chadwick. And in 1950, she swam from England to France in just 13 hours and 20 minutes, which set a new women's record. And then in 1951, she swam back again from France to England and was the first woman to complete the journey in both directions. So in 1952, she wanted an even bigger challenge and she decided to try to swim from the California coast over to Catalina Island. Um, that is a known long-distance swim. It's 26 miles long. So if some of you have run marathons, Florence Chadwick wanted to swim one. Um, and so she set out early in the morning and dove into the Pacific Ocean, and she had small boats on either side of her watching for sharks. Don't have to worry about that in the English Channel. <laughs> Uh, and she swam steadily for 15 hours, and after 15 hours of swimming, this thick fog settled in around her, and she lost sight of the island ahead. And she started to feel like she just couldn't swim any further. Her mum was in one of the boats near her, and her mum kept urging her on, saying she could do it, she could keep going, she was nearly there. And Florence managed to keep swimming for another hour, but then she called it quits, and she was pulled up into one of the boats, exhausted. The boats kept on going through the fog, and they discovered that Florence had given up with only a mile left to go. And if the day had been clear, and she'd been able to see how close she was, she surely would have made it. Two months later, Florence attempted the swim to Catalina Island again, and again the fog came down on her halfway across. But this time she kept going, and she made it all the way to the island, and she said afterward that the difference was that the second time she held a mental image of the shoreline in her mind while she swam, so that even though she couldn't see it, she kept her mind focused on the destination, and that was what made all the difference. So today, as we come to the end of the letter of 1 John, John knows that we're on a difficult journey. And he wants to leave us with confidence that we're going to make it. Because yes, there's fog. But we can make it through the fog because of what we know. So let's turn there now. It's 1 John chapter 5. 
It's on page 1023 of the Church Bibles. 1 John chapter 5. And we're starting at verse 13. So in verse 13, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So John is writing to believers. His whole letter's been to believers. And they're believers who are a bit like Florence Chadwick. They've set out on a difficult journey and they've made a good start. But now the fog has set in on them and they've lost their way a bit. They've started to lose their confidence. And maybe they're tempted to give up and climb into the boat. But John writes to them to restore their confidence and remind them of their destination, to lift up the fog a little bit. So here at the end of his letter, he addresses three of the biggest reasons for doubt in the Christian life. We might call these three great fog machines. <laughs> they cause doubt in pretty much all of our lives at one time or another. And they are the uncertainty of prayer, the stubbornness of sin, and the hostility of the world. All right, so we're going to cover three very big subjects today. Uh, the uncertainty of prayer, the stubbornness of sin, and the hostility of the world. These are what John wants to talk about as he closes his letter, and we're going to look at each of them in turn. So first, John says, what do we do when our prayers seem to be ineffectual? In other words, when we pray and nothing seems to happen. So we're looking at verses 14 and 15. John writes, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Okay? So John here reiterates the two very simple and bold promises that the New Testament consistently makes about prayer. Prayer is heard always. Prayer is answered always. Right? That's what the New Testament says. So Peter says in 1 Peter 3, verse 12, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. And when Peter talks about the righteous, he counts in that group everyone who belongs to Jesus. Jesus says in Mark 11, verses 22 through 24, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Isn't that an astonishing promise? And then James says in chapter 5 verse 14, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. So the voice of scripture concerning prayer is simple and bold and unanimous. Prayer is heard and prayer is answered. End of story. The children of God get what they pray for. Now, there is a caveat to this teaching. Effective prayer has to be according to God's will. So John says in verse 14, If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So that's obviously important. We can't expect answers to silly or selfish prayers. Um, it's good that we seek the Lord's will in prayer and pray according to what he reveals to us. But I think we do need to be a little bit careful with this caveat because there's one way of thinking about it that actually steals away all of our confidence in prayer, which is the opposite of what John's trying to do in this passage. So we might think about it this way. 
that God already knows what he wants to do. And that's his will, but it's completely mysterious to us. And if we happen to pray along the same lines that God was already thinking, then great, the prayer is going to be answered. But if it doesn't happen, then oh well, it must not have been God's will. Right? I think that's a common way for people to think about prayer. But to me, this overplays the caveat. Because the result is that we don't end up praying with any confidence at all. Because if the will of God is that mysterious to us, and if our prayers are only answered if we happen to hit on what God was planning to do anyway, then can we really say that prayer does anything? What the New Testament says is that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Right? So what if we thought about it this way? That we know the will of God because he's revealed it to us in his word. God said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. He said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. He said, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. He said, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. He has made known to us, said Paul, the mystery of his will. To unite all things in heaven and on earth under one head, even Christ. And God says, I shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor weeping, nor pain. That's God's will. He told us what he wants to see happen in the world. He's always for life and not death. Always for love and not hatred. Always for freedom and never slavery. Always for joy and not fear. Always for good and not evil. And always that his son Jesus received the glory and the honor and the praise. He has shown us his will. He has made it known to us. So we don't need to pray with a sense of mystery or trepidation. But we can pray with confidence that we know him what he's like, and what he wants to see happen in the world, we can have confidence that he will do it. But then, you might say to me, John, I do that. I do pray with confidence according to God's will, but I prayed for health and sickness came. I prayed for life and death came. I prayed for justice, but none came. So what sense can I make now of these promises about prayer? And friend, I am with you in this question. This is the heart of the fog. And the problem is that when our prayers seem to go unheard or unanswered, our faith takes a hit. And that faith is the indispensable ingredient of prayer. Jesus said, we mustn't doubt in our hearts, but instead believe that what we ask for will come to pass. And if we think our history of prayer has been one of unanswered prayer, it's hard to believe that what we ask for will come to pass. So what happens is, the weaker our faith, the weaker our prayer. But an unanswered prayer also weakens faith. So it becomes a vicious circle and it can be hard to break. The good news is that the opposite is also true. Effective prayer strengthens our faith and makes our prayers even more effective. So if you feel stuck in the downward spiral, here I think, is the most helpful answer that I've found in my own life. I don't think I'm all the way through this yet, um, but this is what I've learned so far. We need to get better at watching. We need to take the longer view. Because there's a very good chance that many more of your prayers have been answered than you realize, and you just haven't noticed it happening. 
Psalm 5, verse 3 says, In the morning I lay my needs before you, and I wait. Or it can also be translated, I watch. And most of us do the first part and not the second. Most of us lay our needs before God in the morning, and then we don't really watch for what happens. How many of us even remember what we asked for this morning or this week? Um, we pray, but often we don't watch. And Colossians 4 verse 2 says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. When we watch long enough to see what happens, then we can thank God for his answers to our prayers. So um, I've been in the habit of journaling and writing down my prayers for about the last 15 years. Um, and for a while, I used to take uh, one day a week to look back over what I had prayed for the previous week. Um, and I would usually be astonished at how many of the prayers that I prayed had been answered. Regularly, it was at least half over the course of a week. And that was faith-building for me, and it made me want to pray more. Then once a year, I would review the whole year, and that was even more astonishing. I find that maybe even 90% of my prayers have been answered. So God had done what I had asked him. It just took more time than I expected. So if you're feeling weak in faith when it comes to prayer, then I'd encourage you to find a way to watch. All our prayers in Jesus' name are answered. It's what the Bible says. It's just a question of time. And it often takes much longer than we expect. But we know that everything will be answered in the end. And John wants us to be sure about that so that we'll pray with confidence and faith and that it will help lift some of that fog. All right, so that's the first problem. Uh, the next problem John wants to tackle is the problem of sin. So what should we do when sin is stubborn? So John goes on in verses 16 and 17 to say, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, for there is sin that does not lead to death. Um, so, we haven't entirely moved away from the subject of prayer, but John wants to focus on a particular kind of prayer, which is prayer for the forgiveness of sin. And I want to start uh, by repeating what I said before, that our prayers to God for forgiveness are always answered immediately. Always answered immediately. So we might have to wait uh, for God to answer other kinds of prayers, but we never have to wait to uh, have him answer our prayers for forgiveness. It's said and done. Ask Jesus for forgiveness. Believe in your heart that he's paid for you. And you can be sure that you're forgiven right away. That instant. But John writes this part of his letter to Christians who might have trouble feeling sure about that. Because he's talking about times when one Christian might need help from a brother or sister over their guilt over sin. So we know that normally all the children of God can feel free to confess their sins directly to God. We don't need to involve anyone else unless the sin affected them too and we need to apologise and make amends. Ordinarily, we don't need a human intermediary to deal with our sin because the only priest we need is our great high priest Jesus, as it says in the book of Hebrews. But nevertheless... 
John says that we can help each other deal with sin if the situation needs a bit of extra help. He says here that one Christian has the authority to pray for another's forgiveness. So that would mean taking on a priestly role in another Christian's life and interceding for their forgiveness. And that's appropriate because Peter explains in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that God has made all his redeemed children into a kingdom of priests. So that's part of your new identity. And you have authority to pray in this way. So if a Christian brother or sister comes to you and asks for prayer for forgiveness of sin, you can pray for them and it will be done. You can speak over them that they are forgiven in Jesus' name. But why might this kind of prayer be needed? I think the main reason, I can imagine, is in the case of stubborn sin. So when we turn to Jesus, we turn our back on sin, as John says repeatedly in this letter, and we no longer make a habit of sinning. We no longer embrace or welcome any form of ungodliness into our lives. But nevertheless, we're not perfect right away. We all stumble in many ways, and we often stumble repeatedly in the same ways over things we've tried to turn our backs on. And when this happens many times over many years, there are two very serious dangers. The first is that we grow discouraged, that we keep on screwing up in the same old ways and we give up fighting sin and eventually give up following Jesus altogether. That's the first serious danger. The second is that we pretend that we've won the battle over sin when we really haven't. And we get in the habit of burying the sin out of shame or embarrassment that it's still a problem for us even after all this time. So when we're in the business of burying sin instead of confessing it, then we're walking in the darkness, and John says that's fatal to our relationship with the God of light. So stubborn sins can be a real danger and a real cause of fog, and John wants to lift it by bringing up this idea that we can help each other through intercessory prayer. That would mean one Christian coming alongside another in their struggle and declaring over them the forgiveness of God again and again as long as necessary, 70 times 7 if necessary, helping them keep the struggle in the light while not despairing if victory is slow. And I can imagine this happening within marriages or in families or in long-term friendships. And if that situation arises for us, then we need to be a safe place for confession, celebrating the light and proclaiming the patience and grace and forgiveness of God. And I'll remind you here that Taylor and I do hear confessions as part of our ministry, and we're always available to help you in this way. So listen to John's words in verse 18 and hear them as a promise. He says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Hear that as a promise for you. Sin's going to lose in the end. You will get the victory over it. So now that we've laid that groundwork and understood the situation John's imagining, we can now approach this question of what he means by sins that lead to death. And I really don't think John intended this to be a confusing or troubling distinction. It seems that he expected his readers to know what he was talking about. He doesn't try to explain it, and most of the rest of his letter is picked at a fairly basic level for fairly young Christians. So I think we can expect to understand this distinction in the light of what else John has been saying in his letter. 
So what's he been saying? He's been saying that the people who belong to God believe in Jesus, love each other, and confess their sin. And these are the key marks that identify them as part of God's family. And within that new family, all sin is forgivable. Because John wrote in chapter 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So within the family, all sin is forgivable. Wow, we're both having trouble with our words today. Um, but outside the family of God, no sin is forgivable. None. And that's logical because we've, re- we've rejected the very means of forgiveness. We've turned our backs on the only place where sin can be forgiven. So the sins that lead to death are a rejection of Jesus, a rejection of his command to love, and a refusal to confess sin. And if that's the path we choose, then of course there can be no forgiveness, because we've broken the very mechanism that forgives. So only death's going to remain. And what John says is that the intercessions of the saints can't fix that. John says there is a sin that leads to death, and I don't say that we should pray for that. We can't declare forgiveness over someone who refuses to be forgiven, much as we might wish that we could. Now, that doesn't mean we can't pray for that person at all. We can and should pray for them, for their faith, for their repentance, and their life and health and peace as long as they draw breath. But what John means is that we cannot pray the priestly prayers of absolution for someone who won't bring their guilt to Jesus. Okay? So John has shown us what to do when the fog comes down and now thinking about prayer and about sin. And now finally, we're going to look at what we should do when the world is hostile. So if we're going to make the swim over to Catalina Island, then we should expect to find sharks in the water. Here's what John says in verse 19. It's a very striking thing. He says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world. So uh, as if we hadn't had enough difficult things to wrestle with, here's another one. Um, Okay, and and by that sentence, John means that all the human institutions, organizations, and structures through which power is disseminated on the earth are in the hands of the evil one. And what that means for the people of God is that the world is going to stand against us. The more progress that we make with our life in God, the more unfriendly we're likely to find the world. And when John wrote these words, the whole world that he knew was in the grip of the Roman Empire. The world was governed by an emperor who claimed to be God and fed Christians to the lions. And that empire is dead and gone, thank goodness. Um, But I really don't think that our present world is all that much different to John's world. We still find today that the overwhelming majority of wealth and power and influence in the world lies in the hands of evil. It lies in countries ruled by tyrants, businesses that profit from wickedness, companies that propagate injustice, and cartels that peddle crime. So find in the world a business that does justly and promotes goodness, truth, and beauty, and the chances are that that business is going to be struggling to survive, like a delicate flower choked out by weeds. On the other hand, find in the world an organization that deals in terror and violence, and the chances are that it has more money than it even knows what to do with. And they think that's what John means. We've got to realize that if the struggle for this world was merely a battle of human resources, then the side of godliness would be crushed like a bug. It's a daily miracle 
that any light survives on the earth. And so John's words surely remain true that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And in light of this reality, we should right now extinguish any hopes of progressing in the world according to the world's rules. Because if we play the game that the world lays out for us, we're going to be destroyed. That game was designed to destroy us. So here's the deal that the world's going to make with each of us as soon as it can. It's going to say, relax your standards just a little bit and I'll give you a share in all this prosperity. So if you work for a bank, just turn a blind eye to those funds that went missing from our books last night and you'll be next in line for a promotion to senior management. Or if you work for a university, just edit out a few of those more unpalatable phrases from that paper and it will go straight to press in next month's journal. Or if you work for a law office, maybe you could just lose that piece of evidence just for a couple of weeks and I'll see that your bonus this year is unusually good. This is the world's game, and it's played everywhere, every day, because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we're all going to meet up with it if we keep on living and working in the world. But do not think for a second that you can play this game and survive. It's designed to destroy you, and it's incredibly effective. One small compromise like that to your integrity and your threat to the kingdom of darkness is entirely neutralized. So please give up right now any hope of progressing in the world according to the world's rules. That's just a shark in the water waiting to eat you. As God's children, we may progress in the world if God wills, but only according to God's rules. Those are the rules that took Joseph out of Potiphar's household and made him the governor of all Egypt. It snatched Esther out of obscurity and made her the queen of Persia. And it lifted Daniel out of the company of exiles into Nebuchadnezzar's court. They did not get there by compromising their integrity. Quite the reverse. It was entirely God's favor in spite of the world as they remained true to him. So we'll accept the favour that God might give us, but we won't accept any deal that the world has to offer. And we can remain confident that the daily miracle will continue, that within the safety of God's family, the world cannot touch us. John says in verse 18, He who was born of God, that's Jesus, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So that means that Jesus is right there with us in the boat. He's guarding us from the sharks. And they cannot get us while he's on lookout. So stick with him. Stay on course. And stick with his ways. Verse 20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So what that means is that our victory is certain if we stand firm in the truth and refuse to be led astray by the world's idols. All the glittering promises of this world are idols. And I think that's why John ends his letter in verse 21 with the parting warning, little children, keep yourselves from idols. So in conclusion, we can be sure of our destination despite the fog if we hold the image of the island shoreline in our minds, we remember what John has told us about lifting that fog, 
we can find the strength to make it all the way to our destination. Amen.